Hello and welcome to the next episode of the ADHD Mums podcast. I have been all over my socials with excitement that Lael Stone has agreed to this interview. So thank you so much, Lael, to begin with. I'm so happy to be here. So the reason that I reached out to Lael was a couple of the people that I interviewed kept talking about how great she was, and I, of course, already knew who she was, but someone referred to her as the Australian Brené Brown, and I thought, oh, my God, that is not the biggest compliment in the world. (laughs) It is. So I think the work you've done is phenomenal. If someone doesn't know who you are, I'm going to read the quick bio just in case, but obviously I'll put up all of her information if you want to read anything further. So Lael Stone is an educator, TEDx speaker, author, mother, parenting counsellor who has been working with families for over 20 years. Her work as birth educator, postnatal trauma counsellor and parenting educator has seen her work with thousands of families, consulting about newborns all the way through to the teen years. She has spent over five years in the secondary schools working with teens around sexuality, well-being and relationships and her great aim is to empower parents to create connections and stronger relationships with her children. Lael is the co-creator of the Woodline Primary School, which is an innovative new school based on emotional well-being and connection. Lael was the co-host of the Aware Parenting podcast and is a sought-after public speaker who talks candidly about her experiences and her great passion, which is creating wellness in adults through connection and communication. Lael's first book, Raising Resilient and Compassionate Children, has just been released and it is debuting on many bestsellers lists. If you'd like to read that, I've read it. It's awesome. I'm going to put all of her details in the episode notes. How do you feel? It's always funny when someone reads your bio. Is it, how does it feel to you when I read it? It is funny. Sometimes when I'd go and do talks and people, you'd be standing there and people would read it out and you'd be like, oh, this feels awkward <laughs> hearing this. And then sometimes I'd be like, gosh, no wonder I feel tired sometimes. <laughs> There's been a lot of things I've done. But I also feel like ultimately at the end of the day, I, I see myself as a mom and a parent first and foremost, and then I've just had the opportunity to do some really cool stuff around that. So I've followed the trajectory of my children as they've grown through my work, which is pretty nice. So, yeah, I, I, I sit in a place where I feel so blessed to have done what I've been interested in and really followed my passions. So I feel really proud, actually, when I look back and think, yeah, there's been lots of lots of beautiful places and spaces I've touched. Yeah, absolutely. I was having a bit of a laugh with Lael because I was feeling a bit nervous. And of course, we had the tech issues that go with the ADHD month podcast. We can't go one episode without having complete tech chaos, which (laughs) came from my end, probably out of nerves. I said to Lael, I was feeling a little bit nervous. So I thought, oh, look, I'll go into research mode. Then I researched Lael more and then I got more nervous because there was so much written about her (laughs) online. But we're going to see how we go. The topic today, which I think is going to be a really great topic, is how to raise emotionally intelligent children in a neurodiverse Mm. family. One of the biggest Mm. challenges I find on the podcast is that a lot of people feel that when you have a neurodiverse family and you're neurodiverse yourself, it's just that little bit harder to, I suppose, Mm. emotionally regulate and also to emotionally regulate your children. So I think for us, when we talk about creating an emotionally intelligent family, that can feel like a really big goal for us. And it's a little like blind leading the blind. 
Yeah, 100%. And look, I, I wouldn't say after that, my speciality definitely isn't in neurodiversity. So I guess I come from the lens of just speaking. Well, I often say I love to speak for the heart of the child, for the beautiful children in front of us, but also I guess our own inner childs and what happened to us as children, because it does have a big impact on how we parent and how we interact with the world. But I agree with you. I think in an ideal world, I often say this, we could all be amazing parents if there was plenty of money in the bank, someone had done our washing, dinner was made, we'd had a full night's sleep, our nervous system was feeling really calm, we felt really connected to ourselves and our bodies and we were doing work that we loved. I think we would all turn up and probably be the best version of ourselves as a parent if we had all those boxes ticked. But that's actually not the reality of of parenting these days. I think we are parenting in a really stressful environment and a really stressful world without the support that we actually need. And then I think what we do as parents is we give ourselves a really hard time if we yell sometimes or if we don't respond in the ways that ideally we want to. And I think the first thing we need to do is really be compassionate to ourselves to go, we're parenting up against it we're juggling a lot of balls in the air and then perhaps when you add in neurodiverse brains into that it's really challenging so I mean my first piece is this is we've all got to give ourselves a big hug and go this is hard it's really hard and I'm doing the best I can and I think when we can at least put down any judgment and put down any kind of beating ourselves up of we're not getting it right or we're doing it wrong. That takes a little bit of the load off to start with of like, we're all doing the best we can with the tools that we have. And I think that's where we need to start all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a consistent message across neurotypical, neurodiverse, the amount of stress I think that mums are under at the moment seems to be worse than ever. I mean, in this country, obviously, third world countries, it's completely different. But in this country, the pressures just seem to be mounting. In my experience, I found your book to be so interesting because one of the things I wanted to ask you about was I think I wouldn't be the only one on the ADHD mum mom podcast that would resonate with this, but often there's a lot of sensory stuff. So I get very triggered by a lot of noise and two of my boys who are six and five use noise, I reckon, as a weapon against me. I reckon they've worked out that if they make enough noise, I just cave And it was a little confronting to read your permissive parenting because I read some of the examples and I could see the one that you were supposed to be. And I was like, oh, it's particularly the Mm. birthday party one when there was a little Mm. kid and then he wanted the toy, but he couldn't have, but it wasn't Mm. his. It was the birthday present for the other Mm. child. And I was like, this would be my life. I would be there with one of my kids in the corner panicking, Mm. thinking I cannot have Mm. the child that he's going to rip apart this present and put it together. And it was really interesting reading from the child's point of view because I was like, oh, that's you can see why he wants it so badly and I would be the parent that would go, I'll just buy you one if you put it down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a really tricky space often because – the end of the day, I come back to this is that we all love our children so deeply and we all want to, we want them to feel good in their bodies and we want them to get their needs met. And yet sometimes, particularly with our children, and this is also with teenagers as well, things are not going to go the way they want them to. And sometimes our job is to hold that boundary and that really safe space to say, hey, I know you want that, but you can't have it. 
And then often what happens though is particularly if our children have got a big buildup of feelings inside their bodies, then they're going to let us know how they feel about that. And sometimes that is a big meltdown, sometimes that is yelling, and that is hard to hold. And there's no doubt that that is hard to hold when we're in our own homes and perhaps we're like, yeah, you can let it out. It's really hard to hold in public. It's really hard to hold in a birthday party when people are around watching us. And it makes a lot of sense why we often will go, you know what, just have these so we'll we'll give them what they want even if we don't necessarily want them to have that because at the end of the day sometimes we're weighing up can I deal with what's going to happen here and you know I relate to this deeply before I kind of worked in this parenting space I really thought that my job as a mum was to keep my kids happy all the time and I thought that if my kids were happy then that meant I was a good mum so I spent a lot of my time trying to keep my kids happy which Firstly, it didn't work because no one's meant to be happy all the time. And secondly, it was exhausting because all I was doing was trying to troubleshoot all the time and try and keep them okay because I actually didn't know what to do when they got upset. When I said no or something didn't go they want, then they would have these big feelings and I didn't know how to deal with it. And I absolutely hear too that when noise is, is a big trigger for you or when touch can be really full on for some people, it's a huge thing when our kids are having these big feelings when it feels really, really hard for us as well in our bodies. And I guess I've learned over the years to build up I guess, a skill set or also almost almost like a tolerance to be with big feelings because in the beginning I didn't know what to do. It felt very confronting. It was overwhelmed for my system as well and I had to learn how to do it gently and slowly so that I could be with the upset and I could actually then begin to see that it was okay for me to set some boundaries and limits and it was also okay for my children to be upset. But it makes a lot of sense for us as humans. You know, I say we often do two things when we're really confronted by big feelings, if it feels unsafe for us, particularly if we grew up in an environment where we were yelled at or perhaps we were hit or maybe we were shamed or punished, when we had an experience as a child where we did something wrong or we made a mistake and we got yelled at and particularly if we got hurt, then in our own children, when we're parenting, sometimes when that same energy fires up, so someone being angry or someone being a little bit aggressive, we go into, I need to stop this instantly. I need to shut this down because it feels very confronting. And there's no doubt that it feels very confronting. So what do we do? We often power over. So we might yell or take something away from our kids or use some punishment to try and get them to stop behaving that way because it often feels very challenging, confronting. Or we sometimes do the opposite, as you're talking about, we give in and we just give them whatever they want. That also may produce what we need in the moment, which is maybe it, it quiets a child down or it stops them from doing what they want. But those feelings probably still sit there and it's a delicate balance of how to help them release the feelings that may be sitting there for them. And every child is different. Every child is different in how that comes out. Every child is different in how sometimes we need to navigate that with them. So there's not, I think, a one size that fits all. But I often, I guess, look at it from the perspective is that we all have feelings inside us and we want to find healthy ways to express them because we know it doesn't serve anybody to hold on to those feelings and bury them down deep. And we also know that it doesn't feel good when those feelings bubble up and they are really angry and we hurt others with it. And I know that there's challenges around that and how we can find ways to do it to, to do it in healthy and safe ways, really. And, and I think children need to model to children how to do that. And we also need to do it for ourselves because a lot of us as adults don't do it for ourselves either. Yeah, absolutely. I think 
having the emotional depth to be okay with it. I noticed with my son particularly, he used to have 60-minute meltdowns twice a day and I'd be like walking around cringing, thinking he's like a bomb, he's going to go off at any moment and he did. But I suppose over months, this is months, probably even two years actually if I reflect Mm. on it, I found he did it anyway. So it was kind of like I could walk on the eggshells or I could just go about my day. Either way it's going to happen. And as soon as I became a little bit more okay with it, like, well, that's just how it is at the moment, it actually reduced it. But I think my anxiety around it was was actually, it was like a vicious cycle. Yes, yes. And I I have definitely seen that. And and I think you're onto something there, Jane, because our children are often, well, they're always responding to their environment and they're always kind of tuned into us as well. So if we are highly stressed or we're really anxious or we've got stuff going on, they pick up on that. And that then often makes them feel unsafe or unsure because they're like, what's happening here? And again, it's not that we shouldn't not feel those things because we we're human and we feel them but often what we need to do is be clear with our kids that it's our feelings and it's and it's not about them so I often say that so often children are pretty attuned to when we're off and so sometimes they might walk up to us and go are you okay mum and even if we're feeling anxious or we're feeling angry or we're feeling sad often what we do is yeah I'm fine I'm fine and we're actually not fine and and often then what happens is children go well, I kind of sense that you're not okay, but you're telling me that you are. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my intuition saying, actually, no, I'm not right. And I often invite parents to think about it this way. We are better off saying, what? I've got a whole lot of nerves in my body at the moment and that's okay. I'm going to find a way to move them. And it's okay. It's normal. I feel a little bit jumpy at the moment because what happens is when we own where we're at, it helps children go, oh, okay, what I was feeling was true. You know, what I was feeling was all right. Now it's the same as I'm feeling really angry at the moment, but that's mine. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go outside and I'm going to just shake my body for a bit, or I'm going to go and yell at the trees, or I'm going to put on some music and dance, or I'm going to pick up these pillows and I'm going to throw them hard at the wall. Do you want to join me? We start modeling ways to move the feelings that are sitting in our bodies. And then our children begin to go, oh, okay, that's a healthier way to do that instead of hitting my brother or throwing something through the window like it's we're hopefully helping them to see ways that we can move some of the energy through our bodies and I think for most of us as parents these days and it's rare that I I meet an adult that was modeled a healthy expression of feelings most of us what we were modeled was repression and passive aggressiveness or it was anger or it was a massive disconnection and checking out so most adults I work with when I say what was modeled to you around anger what was modeled to you around feeling sad what was modeled to you around frustration what they share is slam doors and yelling or being ignored not hey I'm owning what's happening in my body and I'm going to move it in this way and to, to be so fair our parents grandparents they were doing the best they could they a lot of this information and research wasn't available to them so they were doing the best they can but I often think each generation we have the opportunity to impact and educate ways to actually be connected to ourselves to become those emotionally aware humans that we want to be and I think owning our feelings as adults and parents and modeling healthy ways to move them is one of the first steps that we can do. Yeah absolutely absolutely. Okay so I suppose then no one wants to talk about self-care because it's 
just so frustrating because as mothers that can be the last thing that you're able to get. But if you're talking about regulating emotions and letting out some of the feelings, then for us perhaps instead of talking about self-care, we need to be talking about how to do that with our kids because often as mothers we have our kids with us almost all the time it feels like for me. I don't feel like there's really a lot of time or any time for me to have self-care, but perhaps you can build that in with your kids, those moments, rather than, as you said, holding it all in, which is what I tend to do. I kind of internally cook, I say, like I'm cooking inside, I'll say to my husband, but my face is smiling, but I'm dying inside. I suppose acknowledging that and then doing some of those things with your children would be a great way to to model it instead of pretending everything's okay, which is, yeah, as I said, I I tend to do that. Mm. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I think for a long time what we've thought self-care is is something where you have to leave the home, it's something that you pay for, it's something that you need someone else to come and be with your children in order to do. And, look, sometimes that that is great, like going to a yoga class or having a massage or going for a walk with a friend or whatever it is can be great. But I think there's those beautiful micro moments during the day that we can do to help bring some of that tenderness and nurture to ourselves. I mean, it could be going out into the back garden and just laying down on the grass for 15 minutes and just saying to the kids, I'm just going to feel the earth for a few minutes and you guys can play around me or you can join me if you want and let's look at the clouds. When I had really small kids and, and I know that juggle of when you've got little people and you really don't have time to go to the toilet on your own. My acts of self-care looked like getting some really beautiful oil that's not nice and I'd rub that on my body each day to just be as a sign of like, oh, I'm just, I'm going to just really honour the job I do. It's pretty massive, right? So I'm going to have something that smells good for me. And then sometimes it would be going outside and just standing on the earth for a little bit and just taking some deep breaths. It would be often in the afternoons, I'd say to my kids, when they stop sleeping, I'm going to have half an hour of laying down and I'd sometimes lay down and put my legs up the wall just to try and recharge myself or I'd just lay on the floor with some cushions and I'd say you guys can play around me you can read a book but this is my rest time and I know that that is not applicable to every family and some children have bigger needs than that but I really started to look at how can I model ways of taking care of myself and so often when we do that and we stay really clear with that our children can begin to adapt to what we are doing in those rhythms and those routines like sometimes it takes a bit of modeling and again I really appreciate that it's not as simple as that in every family you know and we have to be pretty flexible and that's why I often think what what could self-care look like well it could just be hey I'll play with you in a minute but I have to go and drink a cup of tea first and we just go and make ourselves a cup of tea and we sit down for five minutes and then we go and connect with our kids in some way I think it's sometimes self-care is talking to a friend just voice noting a friend and saying hey it's been a really hard day today and my child did this and then my other child did that and I just need to voice it and get it out because it feels better when I get it out. So sometimes self-care is a listening partner, which can be pretty awesome just to know that there's someone else on the other end of WhatsApp or Voxer or any of the voice noting things just so that you know you're being heard because exactly as you say, Jane, if it just stays inside and it bubbles away and it festers and cooks, it's going to come out in ways that we often don't want to and that usually is ending up being projected onto the ones we love. And, again, the bigger picture of all this is where is our village, where is the community that we often need that is supporting us. I think it's often not great that we are parenting at home on our own with little people all day. We're not. It's not meant to be like that. We are meant to have 
the aunties and the uncles and the grandparents and the friends around to help share that load. And, and again, that's why I have so much compassion for parents because I'm like, we're doing a really tough job here on our own at home. And then we beat ourselves up because we think we're not getting it right. Whereas actually it's the environment, the system that's a bit broken that needs to change in order to support us more. Yeah, I think that's a really great point, actually. I was talking to a friend recently. It's it's great the advice that your best friend gives you. It's always so compassionate as opposed to the advice that you give yourself. But my husband often yeah. works on a Saturday and at night and I was talking to my friend about all these activities I was trying to do to because the kids just are, are fighting at home and she said to me, why don't you just get out the iPads? And I said to her, look, I, I feel like I can't use screens because of these reasons. And she said, do a 45-minute timer, Jane read a book, have a cup of tea, putting all this pressure on yourself to be perfect and present every moment, maybe maybe over a 12-hour period, that's impossible. Maybe you have to get the iPads out after lunch for 45 minutes. And actually, that's been some of the best advice I've, I've had, actually, because you're right, you have all this stuff in your mind about what you can and can't do. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I say that to parents all the time. Like, you know, when you are grounded and and feeling pretty centered and your child has some big feelings and you can hold space for it then that's awesome but if you are at the end of your tether and you don't have much left in the tank then giving them the ipad is okay because really at the end of the day what we want you to be is kind of the best version of who you can be and so if that means you go and make a cup of tea and take time out for yourself and then you're able to come back with more capacity then that is a win and again i think we set ourselves up for a lot of failure with these ideas if it's got to look like this and it's got to look like that. I think if we're doing a great job, 70% of the time we're winning, right? There is no perfect and there's certainly no perfect in our world with the lack of support that we have. So I think it is really great advice, well done to your friend, because I think there's times where we're like, you know what, yep, do this or, hey, we're having takeaway tonight because I don't want to cook or just whatever it is that allows us to sometimes go, this is going to serve the bigger picture here because I need to minimise my stress or I need to get some of my needs met because that's really important like as a mum ideally if we're looking at a hierarchy we should get mum's needs met first because she holds for everyone else but often mum's needs come down last like they're at the bottom and then we feel depleted and resentful and all those kind of things so at the end of the day it's I often look at well how do we support mum first so she can do the holding for everyone else Wow, I think that's so beautiful. Recently, I talked to my pregnant friend and this isn't her first child. So this isn't her first mum kind of, she's actually three kids in. And she said to me, I want to enjoy all the moments this time. I don't want to wish the time away. This is my last child. I don't want to be on my phone. I don't want to be grumpy. I don't want to be all of this. And I said to her, I said, you know what? I'm actually enjoying the moments about 30% of the time. And it was really hard when I actually put it out like that. And then when I said it, I did a story about it online. And I said, what percentage of parenting or being mum at this point today do you enjoy? I think it was like a Thursday. Mm -hmm. And we had hundreds of replies and we had two possibly that were over 50%. We majority of them were under 30%. And then we had about five people that were at zero that I had to DM because they were not in a good Mm -hmm. space. One of them actually came in for an interview and she did a beautiful interview, just anonymous, about how she really felt. But for the women who aren't really enjoying it at the moment and today, like how how would you think that we could create a bit more joy because sometimes it feels like we're just doing jobs we don't want to do and I struggle sometimes to feel the joy. Yeah. 
Yeah, that it's a very real story. I absolutely, there were plenty of times when my kids were younger where I was like, I don't love this. I don't love this at all. Like this mothering gig is really, really tricky and really hard. And I wasn't finding much joy because I just felt like I was a servant to everybody. And for me, I think one of the biggest pieces within that is that I was not looking after myself or getting my needs met at all. And one of the things that I I find a lot with mothers that I've worked with over the years is our imprints or belief systems around self-care and and getting our needs met. Because as you say, we all know that we need more self-care, but often we have strong stories attached to why we can't have it. So, you know, I'll give an example from my life. So when my kids were younger and I was just strung out, I wasn't meeting my needs, I wasn't taking care of myself. And because I grew up in a family where I watched my mom and and her twin sister and my grandmother, they were all like powerhouse women. And what I watched with them was with this, if you're not doing three things at once, then you're lazy. So my imprint around mothering was constantly giving to everyone else, saving the world at the same time, never sitting down. Like that's what mothering was imprinted to me around. So I thought that being a good mum meant you kept everyone happy and you met everyone's needs, yet it wasn't sustainable. And so then I was grumpy and resentful. And in my mind, I had a story that says, well, if I take self-care or I sit down, then I'm lazy. And I'm like, I don't want to be seen as lazy. So you keep going. And what I was waiting for, which was very interesting, is I felt mothering was hard and I was grumpy a lot of the time. And then when my husband would come home, it was like I wanted him to see how hard it was so he would give me permission to have a break, which is ridiculous because, I I mean, I laugh at it now. I'm like, I don't need permission from my husband to do anything. But in my mind back then, my story was all around, no, I can only have a break if someone gives me permission. And I remember daydreaming when I was young, like when I was a younger mom about going to hospital for a break, thinking, what if I got sick? Not too badly sick, but what if I got sick and then I could go to hospital for a break, which is crazy because somewhere in my mind, it felt like, well, then I'll deserve to have a rest, right? So the only time I get a rest is if I'm sick and I'm away from the family. And I thought, this is crazy. And when I did finally speak it to my husband of like, I'm waiting for you to give me permission to have a break. He's like, just do what you want. What do you want? I'll look after the kids or do this or do that. And I'm like, but I don't know. I, it's almost like I need you to give me permission to do it. And he was like, oh, Lael, like this is, where does this come from? Like this is not going to serve you. And when I began to see that it was so much connected to the imprint I had around that a good mother is one that just keeps giving that I then pretty much sabotaged any self-care that I was going to take or have because it was all about this protective mechanism within me saying, no, 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 that you'll be lazy. Now, I have spoken to so many mothers over the years around this topic and the main themes that I see come up are often this around self-care. I feel guilty if I'm away from my kids. I feel it's lazy if I take time for myself, if I have time for myself, then my partner will need time for them. And then that's going to add more strain and stress on me. Or I don't trust anyone to be with my kids to have self-care. That's a big one as well. We all have stories. And my invitation often is this, is to look at what was modeled to you by the mother or the grandmother figure or the women in your life around self-care. What did you watch your, your mothers do? And I know from the generation of our mothers, self-care looked like going to the solarium, like that was a thing, or going on a diet. Self-care was doing a diet. It was maybe 
playing tennis once a week. That was it. But there was no active self-care. There was no, I need to nurture myself. So most of us went modeled how to do it. And then we put in society's impact, which is really all around, you should be selfless and you should give and you should love doing what you're doing as a mum, right? So we've got that imprint. And then we look at social media and with everybody in their curated, polished lives. And then that makes us feel crap about ourselves. Like, it's no wonder that we're all sitting here going, what? This doesn't feel good at all. And so I think it's a really good narrative to challenge is what is my relationship to self-care? What are the belief systems I have around it? What was modeled to me? And then what do I want it actually to look like? Because I think it's really important that we actually start to go, well, what do I want and what would be ideal? I mean, then we often have our thoughts come up of, well, I can't afford that or that's impossible or And all of those things can be very true, but I invite people to open up a tiny door of possibility to say, I'm really open to having more care for me, more getting my needs met, because kind of circling back to your question is when we are not feeling joy in motherhood and when when we are in that servitude in a way that doesn't feel good, it is usually because we are not meeting our own needs. And we are giving from a completely empty cup all the time, which then often makes us feel resentful and we feel burnt out. And what is vital in order to do the job that we're doing is to meet our needs in whatever way we can. And sometimes we have to put boundaries in place to do it. Sometimes we have to outsource to be able to get the support to do it. I know that can feel tricky as well. Sometimes we just have to blow up those belief systems that tell us that we don't deserve it or that we're going to feel guilty because it's not true. You all deserve it. Mothering is one of the hardest things that we do on this planet. And we have to meet our needs in order to, to be able to turn up for our kids. And I think If we're not finding any joy in mothering, then we really have to look at where we can find our own joy for us first, how we can meet our needs. And then when we've got a bit more capacity, then it allows us to then find a little bit more joy with our beautiful kiddos. Wow, that's such a beautiful answer. Resonates so much with your personal story there. I feel like when my husband comes home and he says, what have you been up to? Because I work from home. I list to him this huge list of everything that I've been doing. And he said, turned around to me one day and said to me, I'm just trying to make conversation with you. I'm not your dad. And that really hit home because I was like, literally my dad would have been like, well, that's not enough. And he goes, I'm just like trying to open up a conversation with you. And you're like telling me this big list. And it was Mm. really interesting because I noticed when I go out, if I leave him with the kids, like often he won't clean up or whatever, whatever, that's fine. He's looking after the kids. It's soul focus. Mm. And then he kind of starts doing stuff if I get home. And then I started thinking to myself the other day, if he goes out for an hour or two, why do I then feel like I need to do all the washing and wash all the dishes? Why why don't I then just sit down with a book like he does? Why don't I do less rather expecting him to do more and then being upset with him? Why don't Mm -hmm. I just do less as well? But there's obviously something that's not joined up there because I haven't mastered that. But I've managed to get some of the thoughts together in my mind that actually I am the problem. It's not my kids. It's not Mm -hmm. a story about my husband, who's a very Mm -hmm. supportive man. It's not a financial thing. It's not, it is me, but yet I'm still giving from this empty cup and I haven't worked out Mm -hmm. how to actually put Mm -hmm. it together yet. Yeah. Well, I think you bring up So much gold there, Jane, because, and this is, I've just written my second book and this is really what this book is about, 
It's about the imprints that we take on board as children that we believe to be true and then we continue to play out. So you just shared a bit about him saying, I'm not your father, right? So if you grew up in an environment where your worth was based on how much you achieve, then our story and imprint becomes, I am only valuable if I'm achieving. And so I, even if it's not paid work, well, here's the work I'm doing at home and here's all the things I've achieved. Am I enough now? Is it okay? Right. And that's a very strong imprint for a lot of people. I am only worthy if I am achieving or ticking boxes or getting good grades or earning good money or driving the right car or all that kind of stuff. And we have imprints around everything from relationships to money, to the jobs we do, to mothering, to our relationship to anger or tears or like everything. We have imprints around everything that happens in our lives because as children we watched in our family of origin how our parents were and then we go okay this is what it looks like and then we go out into the world and we become parents ourselves and we often continue those patterns without even realizing and and exactly this beautiful place that you're sitting in this which is this crossroad that kind of goes well, why do I keep doing that? And why don't I just sit down and rest? And what's the story attached to it? And one of my favorite questions I ask people all the time is when they're doing something that doesn't feel good, I will often ask them the question, well, what do you make it mean? Right. And so it may be that for you, if you were like, well, if I just sit down and have a cup of tea and don't do the fold the washing or unpack the dishwasher, what do I make it mean? You might make it mean that I'm lazy or I'm not good enough because I haven't done something or whatever is the story. And then we have to ask, and is that even true? Where does that story come from? Who's around when we think of that belief system or imprint that we have? Because we can have imprints that are brilliant, right, that help us achieve in the world and, and are all about having courage and it can be about loving deeply or being playful or whatever, right? We've, we've got lots of beautiful imprints, but we've also got a lot that don't serve us. We've also got a lot that that basically keep us often locked in our stories because of what we believe to be true. It's so funny because I heard about your second book and I was reading about it. And I thought, oh, well, that's not really applicable for me because I don't have a lot of trauma. And now I'm talking to you, I'm like, I feel like I really want to read her book now because actually <laughs> I do seem to have a lot of trauma around productivity. And I think yeah. being raised in an ADHD home where 30 years ago, no one was, not no one, not many people were diagnosed in comparison. And my dad had very, I think, very severe ADHD. And my grandma, I remember her chainsawing down a tree when she was 80. And I remember my dad saying, sit down, mum. And then she's going to him, sit down. And then both of them just told each other to sit down and no one sat down. And I think I sat down (laughs) once and then everyone said, why are you sitting down? You're only 12. You shouldn't be sitting down. And I was like, oh, my God, wait, I don't know why we're having lunch. Do we eat it standing up? Like, I don't understand. (laughs) So I think the ADHD hyperactivity that some of us have has probably not worked against us either because – that self-care seems to be modelled particularly badly in my personal opinion and then often you do have that neurological push as well. But then I think we're also offset by this really deep need to rest and recuperate more so, again, in my personal opinion, than neurotypical people because we do have less capacity, in my opinion, with sensory exhaustion, the hyperactive brain running all the time. We do need to rest. But it eludes us with this pattern that you've talked about and it just hit me so hard when you were talking that that might be part of the missing joy that we talk about so much on my podcast. Yeah, well, I think I often say in order to 
create the future we want, we often have to understand our past. And and what I mean by that is we often have to go back and look at what what have I taken on board from this family that I grew up in that serves me and what doesn't. And when we start to unpack some of these stories, we begin to go, oh, yeah, that was probably not good modeling around that. Or, yeah, I've made that mean this. And and I think particularly when I work with mothers, the, things, the three things that turn up as the biggest challenges are self-care, boundaries, and anger. And I find that in all of those categories, most women were not modeled healthy ways to relate to them. And so then they come out in ways in our own lives that don't feel good. You know, we don't give ourselves the self-care we need because of the stories that we have attached to it. Often we're really crappy at setting boundaries because we've all been taught to be very good girls or good boys. We were taught that you just must be good all the time. And when you're good, we will reward you. And when you're bad, we take something away. So we learn as little girls to be good. And then we're taught not to get angry or not to get upset. And so that becomes an imprint that says it's not okay for me to be angry or let my feelings out. And because we then often were worried about what people will think of us, we don't actually set the boundaries that we need to set. And then then that usually fuels to the third one, which is anger, which actually makes us angry because we often don't set boundaries that we should and then we end up feeling resentful and then we often explode because we're actually should have said a no, but we don't know how to say no. It's a bit of a loop that goes on. And it's a huge thing to unpack because, again, most of us were not modelled healthy ways to be with this and I look in my early stages of mothering I didn't do this well at all and then I had daughters I have a a son and then two daughters and there was something about having my daughter where I just kind of looked at her and thought oh my goodness who she's going to be in the world is going to be modeled on me and what am I teaching her what am I teaching her about taking care of her body? What am I teaching her about having a strong no? What am I teaching her about meeting her own needs? What am I teaching her about all these things? And it, it kind of just, it really stopped me in my tracks to go, well, who do I want her to be in the world? And it's not just my daughter, it impacts my son as well. But I think it was a very good line in the sand to help me really reassess what have I been taught and what is my story here around this? And And what do I want for my daughter? Well, whatever I want for her, then I have to start living that. I have to start showing her the way that that can be. Yeah, wow. I think our upbringing might have been slightly similar in that my mum and my aunties were all super powerful women and very capable. Mm. And they were like the force of nature. And unfortunately, my mum's passed away because I would love to ask her how she really felt because she passed away before I could ask her, having been a mother myself. My memories of her are just like Mother Nature and super powerful, capable. She was never upset. She was always the same. She was always incredibly compassionate and, I mean, the perfect mother in my mind. What I wonder is, is if I ask my children in 20 years, is their perspective of their mum always better than what it was? Like, is that Hmm. what you think? No. (laughs) No? Not at all. I think, I mean, it is all about perception, right? Like I think 
I mean, it's interesting. And again, it's what we gauge as being, again, what we're conditioned to go is good or healthy. Like, you know, in you saying I never saw my mum get upset. Like for me, I'm like, oh, okay, what was going on there? <laughs> because as humans, we're meant to be upset and it's okay to be upset at certain parts. But did she have to hold it together, right, and just keep powering on? We're a culture here, particularly in Australia, that rewards grit and stoicism and we've been taught for a long time that's what resilience is. But actually it's not. It's our ability to feel all the things around the challenges that we're feeling and then process them and let them go and then able to move forward. But a lot of the time we're not taught to how to feel it. We're just taught to suck it up and move on. And so I think the thing is, again, too, it is all about perception as the child, right? So you could have brothers and sisters. They could see your mum in one light and you could see her in another. You can have two completely different stories. And one's not right or wrong. It's how we perceive it to be and then the impact of what that's had on us. So your mum could have been just, she sounds like a beautiful, amazing woman. I love that you describe her as a force of nature. That's amazing. She sounds like a really incredible woman. And you can watch that as a little girl and then take on, right, where you just keep going and you keep actioning, right? And that can be a good imprint. It also cannot be, right? It can also be, yes, it's taught me that I can do anything, but also it's not sustainable in this day and age, right? And what I actually need is rest. So what's my relationship to rest? What have I been taught about that? It's all about perception. So same with your children. They'll all grow up and have different perceptions of how you were as a mum. And there is no perfect, right? Because our kids are going to see it the way they're going to see it. I think at the end of the day, what we can kind of control are those core values or core pieces for our children, which is did we turn up for them when things are hard? Were our arms open for cuddles and, and listening to their feelings? Were we able to be tender with them when things were hard? Did we encourage them and not shame them? There's some beautiful stuff that I think we all aspire to do, which set up a beautiful imprint. But then our kids are also going to tell a story in whatever way they're going to make it mean. And again, it's not whether you do it right or wrong. It's what they perceive to be true, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, I would love to ask my mum now whether she cried in the shower every night or where she let her feelings out, how mm. she had fights with my dad, mm. the zero self-care mm. I saw her have. Like my perspective mm. of her was she was perfect, but we weren't perfect children. Mm. Initially, when I first had babies, I thought, oh, well, I must have been a perfect child, clearly, because she was never mm -hmm. upset. Mm. There's something wrong with my kids because mine aren't what I signed up for and I'm really overwhelmed. And I would love to ask her now what her perception really was mm. because I have the perception she was the force of nature of mother of the year, but I, I don't, actually don't mm. remember her yelling at us or doing anything. And I'm thinking to myself, I reckon she would have. We also, as children, we're very good at being able to shut off some memories that don't feel great. Sometimes when we have had micro traumas like that being yelled at, what we can often do is just store it away somewhere in our minds because it feels too painful to have it as a memory. Like we do that. And there's also parts of us that that perceive thing one way and then can create a whole story around it to have a memory that may actually not even be true. Like there's, there's some crazy stuff that we do with our brains and memories and all those kind of things. I mean, regardless of how that lands for with us, I always come back to here and now, what do we make it mean? Like what are we doing in our world that serves us or doesn't serve us? And what are the stories we have attached to it? Whether they're real stories or not, there's still a story that we believe to be true that usually keeps us stuck in stuff.
And so it's working with that story that helps begin to change it. So it's, it's a fascinating thing, right? And I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm sure there's someone who's got many degrees that could tell you more about this. I just kind of work with the feelings that I see with the people in front of me. And again, whether they're true or not, it's how it impacts our lives and what we believe it to be. That's what we need to work with. Wow, that's beautiful. One final question for you, Lael, before we finish up. When I listened to your TEDx talk, which I just love, by the way, there's so many views and I can see why. If anyone hasn't listened to it, check it out. It's awesome. But I was, when I was listening to it, it really hit me that ADHD mums particularly sometimes make themselves really busy on purpose or not on purpose. We think we have to with this drive for perfect, perfect parenting or just productivity. A lot of really eludes us and we work with this to-do list. And sometimes the kids get in the way of this task that we've just thought of, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And it's that inability or not inability, but not wanting to be present a lot of the time that I think can really elude, Mm -hmm. particularly people with ADHD. And I've noticed with medication, I'm taking ADHD medication now. Physically, I can actually slow down a little bit more, but it's like that habit Mm -hmm. is still in my brain of 37 years of behaving in a certain way. And I was wondering if you had any advice for the ADHD mums on the podcast who are still working with a to-do list, all these jobs to do, which we have to do before we are present in ourselves, because for me, I find it quite terrifying. And I was wondering if you had any advice around that. Yeah, again, I, I would definitely say I'm not an expert in this at all. And I think if I look at it through the lens, I guess, of what I've researched and studied and learned over the years is... Sometimes our inability to be with our stillness and quiet is because we're scared of what might come up when we're when we're still. And so we keep moving, so we kind of sometimes don't have to deal with some of the deeper feelings that sit there. And that's what I have seen a lot over the years sometimes is just that busyness just keeps us moving, 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 because if we did stop and we did slow down, then maybe there's some stuff there that would come up that we don't want to feel. So we just keep moving. Now, I'm not saying that's for everybody, but for some people that rings true for them, I think. And so I often say to people when they have got a lot of that busyness going on or whether it is very hard to do that, I'm like, so start with tiny, tiny little steps, which means you set a timer on your phone and when your timer goes off at one o'clock, you are going to sit down for two minutes and all you're going to do is just take some deep breaths just for two minutes. That's it. Start with two minutes. Don't look at your phone. Just look out the window. Take some deep breaths. Maybe you have to take 15 breaths. Count if you need to, right? Whatever you need to do for two minutes and your timer goes off and we've done it. Look at that. We just were still and we didn't do anything. We just followed our breath for a minute. And then you can increase it to three minutes and then you can kind of slowly build up. And I think sometimes we need the evidence to go, hey, it's okay for me to sit still and it's okay for me to be here in this space just for a little bit and I'm still all right and the jobs will still get done in time and what is this experience like for me? Because, again, I really do understand that for some people, no, I can't stop, it feels terrifying or it feels too much or I don't want to close my eyes and breathe because that feels really confronting because I'm not going to do that. Like you have to, you've got to go with where your tolerance is for sure and what feels okay. 
But I think when we are wanting to change habits and stories, we have to start really small. We start with tiny, tiny little steps and we look for the evidence that it's okay and safe enough. And then we take another little step and we increase it a little bit longer and then we build up a little bit more tolerance. And that can be the same with our kids, with feelings. We're really hard to listen to our kids' feelings. But if we can listen to them for like four minutes, then that's a beautiful thing. And then if we need to shut it down or do something, then that's okay. And then the next time we might be able to listen for a little bit longer and we build up our capability to be in some of the tricky stuff sometimes so I guess I come back to this is like how do we how do we make it safe enough to do those things because at the end of the day we all need to feel safe in order to allow these changes in our bodies or these changes in our lifestyles so what would safety look like within that and maybe it isn't sitting down and closing your eyes and breathing maybe it's just going outside for two minutes and taking a few deep breaths and looking at the trees and then go, okay, two minutes is done. Let's go back inside and we'll keep doing what we need to do. It's, it really is about, I'm always coming back to what feels good for you in your body. What would help you to build a little bit more spaciousness? Because the spaciousness, as you're saying, is really important. It allows us to connect with our kiddos. It allows us to connect within ourselves. It allows us to connect with our partners as well. And I think in this very busy world that we live in, Many of us, whether we have ADHD or not, are not very good at being spacious because we live in a world that celebrates hustle and achievement and all the things. And it's something that is tricky to unlearn. I mean, people say to me these days, because I'm doing lots of these big talks, what is success? And my line these days is this, I think success is a calm nervous system. Like that's my goal these days (laughs) at 48 years of age. I'm like, what is success? Success for me is waking up and feeling a calmness in my nervous system and, and feeling pretty centered and grounded. And I'm like, I am winning. I am successful because today this is where it is. And it hasn't always been like that, but my goalposts have moved for sure around what success feels like. Wow. That's beautiful. Because, yeah, I mean, it's a good point. It's like, well, what are you chasing at this point? And a lot of ADHD and high performance go hand in hand some of the time. And it would be really interesting to see if we could get our ADHD brains towards success is a calm nervous system because (laughs) that would be brilliant. So I'm going to write that on my mirror and see what happens. Look, Lael, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else that you wanted to share before we finish up? I think my big message these days is all about being compassionate to ourselves. I just, I think from working with thousands of adults over the years, what I have seen is how hard we can be on ourselves and it doesn't actually help us change anything. The more we beat ourselves up and the harsher we are, the more we then move into this grit of trying to change. What actually creates healing and creates change is compassion. And when we can actually start to ask ourselves the question, what would compassion look like right now? What would compassion look like in this situation? It allows us to soften a little bit and move into a bit of tenderness, which only serves us and others. Now, I also know that that's felt unsafe for a lot of people to be tender or to soften or to be vulnerable. I'm very aware that that can feel unsafe for some people. But I think the more we can take steps towards being compassionate to ourselves and the more compassionate we become to others, it kind of spreads around. And of course, to our beautiful kiddos. So I want to say to anybody who's listening, like take a deep breath and just be compassionate and kind to yourself because the job you're doing is not easy. It's not. 
and we're parenting in a world without the supports that we need and deserve and I think we all need to be a whole lot kinder to ourselves and what we're doing in the world. So compassion is the place that we start, I think. Oh, that's a beautiful message, Leo. I might have to change the theme of this podcast because I know we've gone off topic and I really appreciate you just going in a random direction with me. I know that's not what we've organised. I love that topic. I think that's so important and we haven't really discussed it. So thank you so much. It's been the most calm interview and it actually I really feel quite good. So I'm really hoping that this podcast episode can really kind of show that beautiful space that you hold because I think it's really special and I was like, oh, I feel so much more compassionate to my husband now. I'm not asking him how he is when we when he gets home. Oh, well, that makes me happy. That's so good to hear that. Well, here's the other thing, Jane, what you're saying. If success is a calm nervous system, which I feel like I'm doing pretty good these days, the more we can bring that to other people, then the more it impacts them as well, right? So it's a gift for everybody. I, I figure the more chill and relaxed I am, the more the world benefits. <laughs> That's my mission these days. Yeah, beautiful. Well, look, thank you so much. And I'll leave all of your, not old book, but the book that you've just released. And when you do a new one, I'll leave all of the links on the episode notes. So if anyone wants to follow you or go on your website, all of the details will be there. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Jane. 